This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! An avalanche, Lawa Argus 28 millimeter, astrophotography, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 339 for Sunday, May 7th, 2023. And in today's episode, as usual, I'll be covering the latest news stories that caught my eye for this past week. But first, I wanted to take a moment and once again thank Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake of Petapixel for appearing on the show this past Thursday. It was really wonderful to sit down with those two talented gentlemen and talk to them about photography, videography, YouTubing, and everything else photography-related. And they were fantastic guests, very down-to-earth guys. They were a lot of fun to sit down and talk to. And I wish them much success on their new home at Petapixel. If you haven't already subscribed to Petapixel's YouTube channel, get on over there and hit the subscribe button, watch their videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and don't forget to hit the little bell icon so you can be notified each time they release a new video. All right, let's get into the news and rumor stories for this week. Drone pilot captures huge avalanche up close in Canada. An FPV drone pilot cinematic footage of an enormous avalanche in British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Maytag has been mountain surfing in the picturesque part of Canada and was packing up for the day when he spotted tons of snow rushing down a nearby mountain. First person view or FPV mountain surfing is the art of flying an FPV racing quad down the side of a mountain, almost surfing it like a wave. Quote, we were out for a day of long-range mountain surfing in British Columbia on Vancouver Island with our long-range drones, hoping to get some nice cinematic footage, Matek explains on his YouTube channel. There was a severe avalanche warning a couple of days prior, but things seemed to have calmed down. Just when we were getting ready to leave, I looked up and saw a huge avalanche coming down the mountain right in front of us. I scrambled to get a battery on my drone, fumbled with my GoPro, and booked it out towards the mountain as fast as I possibly could. I got there just in time to see an absolutely scary amount of snow hitting the bottom of the mountain. What looks like water is actually a huge amount of snow with some chunks as big as my truck. The snow slide does behave like a waterfall, and it is a true spectacle to see in 4K cinematic footage. As the drone makes its way up the mountain, you get a sense of the awesome power of the avalanche. Maytag, who posted the footage yesterday, uses a Camera Butter 8 Cinema 1 7-inch frame with a custom front that helps him get shots extremely close to the ground. The camera he uses is a GoPro Bones Hero 10. I'm not sure what a Bones is. I've heard of GoPro Black. Quote, this is a National Geographic level work, man. So well done and amazing timing. I hope this helps to elevate your drone career, says one commenter on his YouTube channel. That was amazing. Something few will ever see in their lifetimes. Thank you. More of Matok's work can be seen on his YouTube channel and his Instagram, and you can find the links to those places in this article in today's show notes. So congratulations to you, sir, for getting some truly stunning avalanche footage. I highly recommend you check out the video. 
Lawa Argus 28mm F1.2, trash or treasure? Well, it's a little bit of both. When I reviewed the Lawa Argus 35mm F095, I was struck by how bad it was, but also how good it could be. Normally, I rate a lens based on how well it handles flare, how sharp it is, and how well it controls chromatic aberrations. Going by the above criteria, the Argus should have failed spectacularly. Now, this is from Chris Nichols, new member of Petapixel. Yet, despite its shortcomings, the 35mm Argus charmed me with its beautiful bokeh. And, I'll say it, character. When the opportunity arose to review the Lawa 28mm Argus F1.2, I assumed it would be more of the same. I was especially thrilled to review a lens in a focal length I enjoy using. 28mm is a particular favorite of mine. The Lawa 28mm Argus is beautifully made and handsome to look at. Multiple colors of paint are used for the markings on the lens, a nice touch that feels a little luxurious. The machining works in preci- work is precise with the manual focus helicoid that turns smoothly. All the knurling is cut well, and the aperture ring clicks into place with positive feedback. There is also a switch allowing you to declick the aperture ring, which is a boon for videographers. The 28mm Argus has a heft because of its all-metal construction, but it is very manageable, 562 grams. The high-quality metal lens hood is provided, which must be removed when changing any 62mm filters. Unfortunately, there is no electronic communication between the lens and your camera. Without any communication between the lens and body, aperture data will be sadly missing from the EXIF file. Any in-body image stabilization will have to be dialed in manually in regard to focal length. Perhaps the most egregious issue will be the lack of automatic corrections applied to your images. When the images are imported into your favorite image editing software, you'll have to manually correct issues like distortion and vignetting. And yes, there will be lots of distortion and vignetting. In my experience, a Lala Argus lens is going to have some serious optical issues. Let's get those out of the way, shall we? The key to shooting most Lala lenses is to understand that flare, particularly ghosting, will be present anytime a bright light source is near the frame. And by present, I mean glaring and obvious. It's very common to have a large rainbow pattern, rings, colorful globes opposite any bright light sources in the frame. If you can use this excessive ghosting in a creative way, you'll enjoy this lens. Otherwise, you may find the bright shapes distracting and frustrating to deal with. The 28mm Argus is capable of rendering a decent level of detail, even at f1.2. However, that level of sharpness is restricted to the center of the image only, and contrast is very low. Sadly, the corners of the image will be very blurry, and even when the focus is specifically set to the corners, the results are poor. Stopping the lens down will improve overall contrast and sharpness, but the corners only slightly improve. I would keep any important subjects in the center of the image as much as possible. If you need corner to, or center-to-corner sharpness in your shots, you might want to look elsewhere. You will also find that bright pinpoints of light in the corners take on strange shapes and are subject to heavy chromatic aberrations. This makes the 28mm Argus a poor choice for astrophotography applications. An unfortunate outcome considering its wide field of view and very bright maximum aperture seem ideal for astrophotographers. It's easy to point out all the faults because they are so obvious, yet the 28mm Argus has some redeeming features too. 
Chromatic aberrations, which typically cause colors to bleed in areas of stark contrast, are largely absent from photos with the Argus lenses. Long longitudinal chromatic aberrations, or loca for short, are particularly nasty to remove in, pros, in post. Luckily, it also largely absent from the photos shot with the Argus 28. If you get close to your subject and shoot at wide apertures, the 28mm Argus delivers the shallow depth of field. It renders the transition from areas of sharp focus through out-of-focus backgrounds smoothly and with a gentle gradient that looks pleasing to the eye. Thanks to the 13-bladed aperture, specular highlights have an almost perfect roundness to them, even when stopped down. There is definitely some cat's eye effect going on in the, cor in the corners wide open. However, this goes away quickly as the aperture is closed down. This look could even be a nice way to draw the eye to the center of the image surrounding your subject with a swirl of lights. Your enjoyment of the $599 Lala 28mm Argus f1.2 is inversely proportional to your dislike for the quirkiness. To love the images from the 28mm Argus, you have to tolerate the ghosting and soft corners. You also need to find ways to use those flaws to create stronger photographs. I could see a photographer using this lens for street photography or funky wide-angle portraits and enjoying its quirks. Videographers can likewise create some compelling setups with the heavy ghosting and smooth bokeh of this lens. Think panning movements past the sky where streaks of rainbow color dash across the frame. I wouldn't recommend this lens to any ardent landscape or architectural photographers. The poor overall sharpness across the frame and lackluster sun stars won't win over many people. I definitely would not recommend it to someone who expects a lens to be free of vices. If the lack of electronic communication with the camera body seems daunting, do not buy this lens. The Lawa Argus line is nothing if not unique. To get a similar set of quirks, you should look no further than the other Argus full-frame lenses, of which the company currently makes three. Lawa offers these lenses in four mounts, Canon RF, Sony E, Nikon Z, and the L mount. Along with the 28mm f1.2, there is the Argus 35 f095 and a 45 f095 to cover a range of situations. But should you buy it? Maybe. The price makes it fairly affordable, and the lens can deliver compelling images if you accept all its idiosyncrasies, then you just might fall in love. And I thought this was a great article and a great video. I highly recommend you, you head on over to Petapixel and watch the YouTube video uh, review on this lens that Chris and Jordan just released earlier today. That's Saturday as I'm recording this. Um, it is a very good video, and you can find the video at the top of this article in today's show notes. How one astrophotographer made a scientific discovery. Astrophotographer Bray Falls recently posted a series of striking images on Instagram that instantly caught Petapixel's eye. Falls' photos aren't just visually stunning, they represent a brand new discovery, a significant accomplishment for any astrophotographer. Petapixel chatted with Falls about his discovery, astrophotography, his advice for budding astrophotographers, and how he hopes his images might inspire others. The story behind Bray's new images goes back to last December. He discovered an insane structure unlike anything else in the sky, tucked away in the starlight of the small Sagittarius star cloud. Quote, I discovered this structure while performing narrowband oxygen-3 or O3 surveys of the whole area of the sky, Falls tells Petapixel. This is an emission line that isn't well studied, so lots of cool stuff has the chance to pop up. 
While a detailed discussion is beyond the scope of this article when Falls refers to O3, he is talking about doubly ionized oxygen. Concentrated levels of O3 are found in diffuse and planetary nebula. So astronomers often use narrow bandpass filters designed to isolate O3 emission lines 500.7 nanometers and 495.9 nanometers. While he discovered the object in the winter, he had to wait until the spring to capture images. Since the structure has only just now been found by Falls, it has yet to be studied. However, Falls knows the origin of the incredible structure. Quote, this structure is guaranteed to be a supernova remnant. The remnant is known in the radio and x-ray spectrum, uh, but nobody has bothered to study it since it was found. It's about 10,000 light years away, and you can view existing radio and x-ray images. Those linked images look much different from Fall's new photos. What fa sets Fall's work apart and makes it unique is that he discovered an optical component of the supernova remnant. This means it is visible light in wavelengths that the eye can perceive. Not only is Falls the first person to observe this supernova remnant in visible wavelengths, but the structure itself is also unusual. There are some minor resemblances to other supernova remnants in the sky, like the Vela supernova remnant, SNR, and maybe the Veil SNR, but there is not a structure in the sky quite like this one. It is unique and very weird, Falls tells Petapixel. In this spectacular multicolored image above, Falls explains that red represents hydrogen alpha emissions and blue represents O3 emissions. Many of the colors in the picture are natural, including the color of the stars and some of the natural background gases. These colors are close to true, but a little off, Falls explains. O3 is more of a teal color, but I make it look blue since it looks prettier. The oxygen emissions are red, or hydrogen emissions are red, so that is realistic. As for processing, a lot of work is involved to ensure the images showcase celestial structures in the best light. Quote, the starless narrowband images are overlaid upon the RGB image with stars to help emphasize the narrowband gases. I also must do a continuum subtraction, uh, subtraction to remove the diffuse starlight from the narrowband images to improve contrast. This structure is in the middle of the Milky Way, so the glow of the starlight makes it into narrowband filter when it shouldn't. That light can be subtracted from a natural color image, Falls explains to Petapixel. Petapixel asks Falls how he approaches image processing. For example, as O3 emissions are more teal straight from the camera and Falls opts to process them to be bluer because it looks better, how does he emphasize visual appeal relative to delivering a realistic final photo? Quote, this is something I struggle with and something I change my mind about as I have continued in astrophotography. Nowadays, my goal is to show new details and context and not corrupt space's natural beauty. For images that mix natural light and narrowband, I try to keep some realism regarding color, especially for details. However, when working in pure narrowband images, Falls explains that colors are false no matter what you do, so he has no reservation about being creative when editing colors. As for the details and photos, his goal is to emphasize what's present in the image. Realism is essential to Falls. Quote, my primary objective is to show things in space in a new light, whether that be showing a familiar object in a new context or showing an entirely new object. My goal is to take creative images, Falls says.
I want viewers to get the sense that there is a world of wonder above their heads that is still being explored. Not everything is known. Not everything has been seen. There is still so much to explore if you decide to look. I want to inspire curiosity in the viewer. Whether it's my own work or someone else's viewing uh, astrophotography makes me feel excited and inspired. I'm especially excited by seeing unique images, even of the common objects. Astrophotography is space exploration, and the fact that anyone can do it, even from their backyard, is very inspiring to me, Falls continues. Falls' latest discovery is technically his ninth, and he's only in his mid-twenties. Bray has been doing astrophotography for a little over a decade. He's an entirely self-taught photographer and astronomer, although he has space-related education. His background is aerospace engineering. He started, as many astronomers do, by looking up at the night sky. He used a pair of binoculars to get a closer look at the moon and then the planets. The binoculars soon gave way to a telescope and eventually a camera designed to capture faint objects. Photography, for me, is a means to do astronomy. The two fields are inexcrucibly linked due to the biology, Paul says, adding human eyes suck at night. From those humble beginnings and through a passion for astronomy and the arduous work that it involves, Falls made another considerable discovery just a few months ago. Due to the extra time and work it takes to study the objects, it means it takes a lot longer to share the images, so currently only two of these objects have been posted publicly. The first is my first official true discovery, and the second is a repeat of my latest image, another optical component I discovered of a known supernova remnant. For discoveries of totally unknown things, it takes a lot of time to get them reviewed and cataloged officially, Falls says. The first official discovery he references is Fall Object 1, the Kyber Crystal Nebula. For the uninitiated lightsabers, the famous weapon of choice for Jedi, Sith, and occasionally other Force-sensitive individuals in the Star Wars universe are powered by what's called a, cyber, or a Kyber Crystal. It is a fitting name for false discovery, given this article is being published during the same week as Star Wars Day. Falls made that discovery using a telescope set up at the Remote Telescope Hosting Facility, the Sierra Remote Observatories, or SRO. At the SRO, astronomers can securely leave their equipment and remotely control their gear from the comfort of their homes. Falls' photo of the Kyber Crystal Nebula he discovered and named is his current favorite. It's an especially meaningful photo for Falls because of the amount of work and suffering it took to make it happen. Alongside ob observations using SRO, Falls tells Petapixel he observes from all over. A lot, of a lot from California at SRO in the Joshua Tree Desert, and a lot from Arizona, Utah, and some from Texas, and a lot from Nambia. These days, Falls can't get enough of the Gum Nebula and Pupus constellation area of the sky. It's a vast area full of crazy structures that Falls rarely sees photographed. Looking at the longer term, he hopes to continue progress on the Southern Hemisphere Narrowband Survey and search for more undiscovered objects. When he finishes the exploration survey, he hopes to share a huge panoramic image highlighting the locations of all discoveries made. It will surely be a truly spectacular image. Beyond the immense time investment required to do astronomical surveys, Falls must work around the conditions. Weather is the greatest challenge. There's only so much you can do if the skies refuse to be clear, Falls says. Despite the incredible photos he's captured in the last few months, including exciting discoveries, 
He tells Petapixel that the previous couple of months in California, where the SRO is, has been truly terrible for astronomy. Bray Falls has already made another interesting discovery within the O3 narrowband spectrum, although he's not sure when he'll be able to share the detailed results and new images. There's only so much nighttime for observations, and astrophotographers like Falls must work around the lunar cycle and weather. People can plan for the moon, but the weather is a constant wild card. Quote, the way I divvy up my telescope time is still something I'm working on. When the moon is not in the sky, I typically survey the sky for new things. The moon messes up images with the O3 filter, so I have to wait for it to go away when looking for ultra-faint things, Falls explains. When the moon is partially out, he often performs follow-up images of prior discoveries and observations. Although it's bright, Falls can still work when the moon is full. He will shoot hydrogen alpha or sulfur-2 images of objects since these filters are in the deep red and hold up well under the full moonlight. Under constant time pressure, Falls is still developing an ideal workflow that balances his long-term survey work with making new images. Concerning his images, Falls relies heavily on his friends and colleagues to help him with astrophysics and analyzing his photos. Quote, by trade, I'm not educated in astrophysics since my degree is in aerospace engineering. I am good at taking photos and looking for things, but once I find the things, I'm pretty dumb at finding an explanation, Falls admits, although arguably not giving himself enough credit. My friends Marcel Dreschler and Xavier Stotner, Robert Fesson, and Dana Patrick have helped on the astrophysics end, Falls explains. Four months ago, Falls and Stratner, Fezen, Yanni Sadie, uh, Saini, Sean Walker, and Stephen Kimswenner discovered a new nebula. Quote, what you're looking at is an absolutely massive low-surface brightness arc of oxygen gas. This was completely unknown until a couple of months ago when Yan, Marcel, and Xavier noticed some weird things going on in their data. I used my telescope to do some follow-up observations to verify the existence of this crazy structure, Falls says. Beyond the people Falls mentioned that help with astrophysics, he takes a lot of creative inspiration from other friends and colleagues in the field. While he warns Petapixel that a comprehensive list would be too long and that he has undoubtedly forgotten some people, he's inspired by Rogelio Bernal, Andrio, Nicholas Lafadio, Milsevac, Druckmuller, Wolfgang Promper, and Weehai Wang. There are a lot of really great astrophotographers out there, Falls tells Pitapixel. He recommends exploring Astrobin, a go-to place for astrophotographers to share their work. However, Falls specifically sent along a couple of photos on Astrobin for Pitapixel readers to check out. This one by Marcel Dreschler and this photo by Wolfgang Promper. He also recommends that people visit internationally acclaimed astrophotographer Rogelio Bernardi Andres, Andreo's website. All right. Wow, this is getting to be long here. While a detailed breakdown of Bray's equipment is available on his website, he tells Petapixel that he used his Takashihi FSQ-106 EDX-3 with a 0.7 times focal reducer and a QHY 600 camera to capture the awesome nebula images that first caught Petapixel's attention. Quote, the focal length is 389 millimeters and the F-ratio is 3.6. This is very fast for a telescope, which really helps with this faint stuff. 
My telescope is also located at SRO, which helps a lot with access to dark and clear skies on a consistent basis. The sensor for the camera uses a 61 megapixel full frame sensor. The system is well suited to surveying the sky for faint things, Falls explains. For photographers interested in astrophotography, quote, the best way to start is to use what you already have. If you have a DSLR camera, perfect. A pair of binoculars can also provide a great visual experience, says Falls. Astrophotography is expensive, and you will waste money if you don't know what kind of photos you want to take. I recommend getting out under the stars, looking at other people's photos, find what you uh, are inspired by, then work your way backward from that goal. However, for those who desire a one-size-fits-all answer, you can't go wrong with a DSLR, a Rokinon 135mm lens, and a star tracker. On Bray's blog, he has a post outlining different budget setups that photographers can use to perform deep-sky photography. Even with the appropriate equipment, capturing and processing astrophotography images can be daunting. Falls offers consultation services and has produced a pair of image processing guides. Falls also has an upcoming workshop that he's hosting with his best friend, Derek Culver. Falls tells Pitup Pixel that he's always happy to do one-on-one -on -one work with interested photographers, whether someone is interested in image processing or capture. Just reach out via my website, Bray says. Bray Falls Astrophotography is available on his website, Instagram, and Astrobin. He also regularly posts videos on his YouTube channel showcasing his latest observations and sharing tips and behind-the-scenes information. And I thought this was a really cool article. There's been a lot more going on lately with uh, photographs of objects in outer space, especially with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. There's been a lot of interesting discoveries made in the last year or so. And I always find this kind of scientific stuff really interesting, especially when it's, a comp or when it's paired with some beautiful final images. Next up, photographer claims he was assaulted while covering a concert. A photographer that was brutally thrown out of a metal concert while taking photos has claimed he was assaulted by security staff. The incident happened during Heart 6 set at the junction in Lansing, Michigan on Friday, April 28th, where Dustin Noel claims he was grabbed by the neck and slammed to the ground for no reason. I don't understand. I was the smallest guy in that whole section, he tells WLNS. Noel was filming video on his phone, which captured the moment he was suddenly grabbed by security. Quote, the next thing I know, he grabbed me by the neck and threw me to the floor, he says. I would understand if I was unruly or doing something wrong, but I was literally just standing there. So I was upset, you know. I couldn't figure out what I did wrong. Noel attended the, ho uh, attended the hospital after paramedics recommended he attend the emergency room to get his swollen ankle checked out. Once in the hospital, they did x-rays on my knee and ankle, CT scan, a CT scan with contrast, and they made me wear a neck brace, Noel writes on Facebook. A quote, I have a sprained ankle, bruising on my muscles in my chest and back, a faint black eye, lacerations and bruising from my ankle all the way up to my knee. After Noel's alleged assault, gig attendees took to the internet to leave the venue one star reviews because of what happened. Quote, he was being carried out by his neck upside down, says witness Eric Britt. From what I gather, he got too close to the security guard involved with his phone. No one should be assaulted coming to a show. I was shocked. However, the venue's manager, Tyler Mainville, has not accepted responsibility for the incident. Noel even claims that the venue accused him of provoking the security guard. 
Quote, it's been taken out of context to a certain degree. The venue's manager, Manville, tells WLNS. Room full of people who are most moshing, and that particular guard was involved with trying to deal with an injured person, and immediately previous to that, expectations of safety were a lot higher, and you know, sometimes bad things happen. The venue says it plans to file defamation lawsuits against all the negative reviews, as does Noel for his injuries. Quote, I want to make sure that people feel safe when they go to shows, Noel adds. However, however, the venue has said that the guard involved in the incident is on leave as they investigate. Petapixel reached out to Noel and the junction. Both parties did not respond as a publication. And this is definitely sad. I mean, if the guy wasn't doing anything wrong, why the heck did you manhandle him and beat him to a pulp? I mean, he was just standing there quietly shooting video on his phone. And you accost him like that? That's really extreme and over the top. And I hope he's able to get some sort of justice out of this. But I don't know if that'll happen. I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right. I'm going to take a short break right here. And then I will be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Next up, photographer spends 10 years paying homage to Dolly Parton. Photographer Alice Hawkins described her decade-long Dear Dolly project as a personal love letter to the country star. Hawkins' photos follow four Dolly disciplines, including herself, capturing cosplay photos of the women as the, they navigate life dressed in the iconic blonde wig while dragging a, a guitar around. Quote, I love and admire everything I know about Dolly Parton. She is my idol and my aim is to create work that matters to me personally, Hawkins tells Petapixel. I have always been fascinated by the various notions of glamour in America. I consider Dolly as the queen of both. America made a profound impact on me whilst I was growing up in Suffolk, UK. Hawkins has released a book of her Dear Dolly project, which shows the Dolly lookalikes out in public as well as intimate shots at home. The three other Dolly disciplines in the book live in the UK, or disciples, I'm sorry, live in the UK, but illustrate Dolly's global impact. Claire is from Liverpool, Kelly is in Australia, and Trixie is Canadian, says Hawkins. They all adore Dolly and her music, too, and what it's brought to uh, what it is has brought us together. Kelly is the only professional impersonator. The other two simply remind me of Dolly, she continues. Meeting them felt destined, written in the stars. Everything about them and their personal environments felt like a perfect dream, and collectively, we feel closer to Dolly. In the third chapter of Dear Dolly, the viewers get a more intimate look at Hawkins with photos of her heavily pregnant while expecting twins. I understand self-portraiture as an opportunity to declare who you are visually and who you aspire to be. Dear Dolly is my most personal project, and my decision to physically place myself in the images as subject further acts to communicate 
what Dolly means to me, she says. Photographically, it's not the easiest way to work, yet it adds to the excitement, like taking a leap of faith, which I think is good when you can't control everything. The Jolene singer once famously quipped, I'm not offended by the dumb blonde jokes because I know I'm not dumb and I'm not blonde either. Cementing Parton's ostentiousness and strong personality. Dolly is at once a real person of extraordinary talents and someone whose persona is much larger than life. That, in some magic way, she can mean different things to millions of different people everywhere, says Hawkins. She is a true individualist made up of many layers and contradictions. Her audience does not represent a singular group. It's multicultural, multi-geographical, spanning all sectors of society and class. She seems to create an apolitical space where people who are different can live in harmony. She is a prolific businesswoman with a God-gifted talent for songwriting and a voice of an angel. Hawkins adds that after her she first saw Parton perform at a gig in London over 20 years ago that she was instantly bewitched by the star. Her appearance bedazzles and her performance is mesmerizing. I felt spellbound and I knew I had found my idol. She was everything I never dared to be. Her persona and presence gives clarity to the notion you can be radiant, sexy, blonde, and almighty at the same time. Dear Dolly by Alice Hawkins can be purchased here. More of Hawkins' work can be found on her Instagram. And I thought that was definitely an interesting story, uh, which is why I covered it this week. And there are some beautiful images that she has captured with her friends in this homage to Dolly Parton. <laughs> Photographers cleverly bring street art to impossible places. Acclaimed British photographer Joseph Ford collaborated with some of the world's leading street artists in a striking new photo series, Impossible Street Art. Alongside street artists such as Pita Lavalette uh, La and Victoria Villasa, Ford tackled the idea. Quote, what if street artists could work on any surface not restricted by scale, accessibility, safety, or rules? And there are some interesting images in this article in the show notes. Ford photographs street art that cleverly blends into the surrounding landscape to put the street artist's work in places they couldn't otherwise create, including heavily guarded and protected locations like the Pantheon in Paris, England's iconic Seven Sisters chalk cliffs, and a central strip of freeway in Los Angeles. Ford's collaborators were given large photographic prints of the selected locations as canvases and then created original hard-made artworks directly onto the photos. Ford took photos of the prints in their original location, capturing them anew, complete with their beautiful modifications, something Colossal describes as playful and imaginative. In the first release of the Impossible Street Art series, Ford has unveiled eight prints with each work brilliantly bringing each artist's unique style to their life. A door featured in the video above introduced their imaginative character to the scene. The collaborative photo project also celebrates PETA's famous optical illusions and Victoria Valencia's integrations of textiles into her murals. Even though Ford supplied his fellow artists with large prints, the street artists are nonetheless used to working at a much larger scale, so the different workflow offered them a unique challenge. While Ford's new collaborative series enables artists to infuse famous protected locations with their artwork, Ford faced challenges during image capture. 
Beyond the challenge of capturing each, each area twice with similar lighting, weather, and framing, Ford was also chased away by security guards, attacked by hungry mosquitoes, and had the artworks blown over by strong winds. The project has many moving pieces, and execution requires meticulous planning. Street artists are well known for having this immense creativity that already pushes at the limits of what's possible. I wanted to see what we could create together if those limits were removed altogether. What could we do with landmarks it would be impossible to get to? What if instead of a brick wall, the canvas were the side of a mountain or the surface of the sea, Ford says. I've blown away. I've been blown away with the ideas the artist came up with, and it's been a privilege to use my photography to situate those ideals in the real world and highlight how limitless the imagination of street artists is, he continues. Artists featured in the first print release include Adora, France, Dennis Myers, Belgium, uh, Jonas Deman, Netherlands, Lavalette, France, Morley, USA, PETA, Italy, and Victoria Valanza, Mexico. Further artworks are in progress, and Ford says more information about locations and contributing artists will be shared later this year. Quote, the impossible street art project caught my attention because it interrupts reality for the viewer and allows me as an artist to reimagine the world with all limits removed. Street art says that anything in this world can be a canvas, and Joseph's process takes that idea and runs with it. There is a long-term vision for this collaboration, and I'm excited to see what other artists will bring to it, says collaborating artist Victoria Velasa. More of award-winning photography, Joseph Ford's work is available on his website. Prints from Impossible Street Art and Ford's previous projects are available through his online store, including prints from Ford's amazing collaboration, Knighted Camouflage with... Uh, Knitted camouflage with knitter Nina Dodd, the Petapixel featured in 2018. Joseph Ford can also be followed on Instagram and Facebook. And I think this is a really cool idea because there are some truly iconic places in the world that a street artist could not easily get access to to do their art. And by making these photographs and then turning them into large prints so the street artist can modify them is a really cool and unique idea. And my hat's off to him for coming up with that cool concept. Can a photograph change the world? Portraying injustices is not something novel. From the beginning of the 20th century to the present day, many photographers have been concerned about leaving their mark. But can we try to change the world, even make it a better place through a photograph? You would be surprised to know how many photographers have tried to use their images to persuade us uh, of the need for change. In these cases, photography is intended to make amends, to denounce certain situations, and to elicit a response. Quote, photography is a small voice at best, but sometimes one photograph or a group of them can lure our sense of awareness. That quote is from W. Eugene Smith of Paris. The term documentary photography refers to images made with the aim of reflecting the world, respecting facts, and seeking veracity. As such, documentary photography is an image that confirms and certifies an event and is based on its ability to bring reality closer. This does not mean that documentary photography shows the whole truth, nor is it the only photographic possibility. On top of that, those photographs need to be disseminated and need an audience to be challenged by them. Utopian documentary is an aspect of documentary photography, but it goes further. 
Photographs are not only taken to indicate something, to show reality, but they also rely on an image's potential ability to convince its powers of persuasion to improve the world. How can a photograph have such an impact on us? On one hand, the mechanical component of photography, the camera, makes perceived facts more believable. On the other, photography is socially considered to be more accurate than other means of art. The photographer focuses on reality, obtaining an image that, by analogy with the portrayed subject, will be synonymous with veracity. Moreover, there is another idea that in order to capture said image, the photographer had to be an eyewitness. In other words, they had to be there. The first images produced with a camera were obtained nearly two centuries ago. From the very beginning, photography swayed between being documentary, getting close to reality, and representing facts and being artistic, expressing feelings and building scenes. In other words, truth or beauty. Documentary intention in photography, however, did not emerge until the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It all began in New York with Jacob August Riles from 1849 to 1914 and Lewis Hine from 1874 to 1940. Both photographs, social themes, were the ultimate aim of highlighting certain inequalities in order to change them. It is important to understand that during those years, the transition to an industrialized society created massive inequalities. In 1890, Jacob A. Rice, an immigrant of Danish origin who was aware of the limits of the written word to describe facts, began taking photographs to show the vulnerability and living conditions of urban immigrants. A few years later, in New York, he published How the Other Half Lives. The book was highly significant and led to urban reform in the city's less favored areas, for example, with the creation of playgrounds or gardens. At the beginning of the 20th century, Lewis Hine, the first social sociologist to make himself heard with a camera, took photographs of immigrants arriving at Ellis Island, showing how they adapted to a new life. However, his most important works were on child labor in mines and textile factories. Thanks to these images, he was able to promote the Child Labor Protection Act. This intention of reform would be maintained in the 1930s, although in the U.S., through the Farm Security Administration, a set of reforms and subsidies approved during the Roosevelt administration with the aim of alleviating the suffering caused by the crash of 1929. In this program, a number of photographers were recruited to raise awareness among citizens through images of the need for such aid. Dorothea Lang, Walker Evans, and Margaret Burke White, among the others, are worth noting. After World War II, documentary photography lost some of its vigor. Photojournalism, however, took up its principles in illustrated magazines, which were a booming success, published topics of human interest. Sebastião Salgado, Brazil, 1944, was one of the noteworthy photographers at the end of the century. His main work focused on portraying the suffering of humans who experienced situations of exile, emigration, hard working conditions, or the misery of certain communities. It shows the Western world what life is like in places where our gazes do not fall. The Spaniard uh, Gervasio Sanchez, with his long-term project Mind Lives, and James Natchke, uh, Natchi, with his work in Afghanistan, are notable contributors to this field. Nowadays, there are photographers with the same concerns who seek to persuade their contemporaries to change the world and mobilize consciousness. Furthermore, it is already fully accepted that documentary photographs can offer many possibilities that they are not governed by one specific formula. 
Since the end of the 20th century, the meaning of the word documentary in photography has been evolving, although the same confidence in the communication capacity of photographs runs through every definition. It could be said that documentaries that aim to improve and stimulate responses are still valid and relevant. There are still photographers who are interested in reforming and persuading their contemporaries of the need to make the world a better place and who still believe that documentary photography has to be committed to this goal. In short, they have not given up on utopia. However, wherever there is a photographer, there must also be an audience that recognizes those images as documents and is able to read them, giving meaning to the images and acting accordingly. Obviously, it will depend on each person and the life moment they are experiencing at that time. We will not all be affected in the same way. Nevertheless, as individuals, if we ultimately feel challenged by these photographs, and we are moved even just a little, then we can do great good. And I thought that was a really fantastic story, and it talked about some of the great photographers of the 19th and 20th century, which was also totally cool. And last for this week, interpreting the language of photography. If you are not responsible for the meaning behind your photographs, then who is? The camera can be many things, but compared to fine arts outside of photography, it can be seen as a buffer between the artist and their art. In paintings, you can see the difference between hard and soft brushstrokes. In sculpture, you can see where the clay has been aggressively twisted or calmly worked. The process behind these arts lends itself to tactile, directly hands-on manipulation of materials, where pressing a shutter does not. This means that even when an artist does not have a direct message for their audience, they can at least talk about their intention towards the art itself. For example, a painter who throws art on a canvas may not tell you what the shapes look like to them and leave it for you to figure out, but they can tell you whether they were angry, upset, or dancing when they threw the paint. The camera as a buffer means that whether the photographer is happy or sad when they make an image that may have little effect on the image itself. Unless someone is shaking with rage so as to blur the frame or making some other active decision, the actual relation between a photographer is feeling and their views, viewer feels when they see the image can be very distant without specific guidance. Words and language are something of a Rorschian inkblot open to interpretation. Warshak, I'm sorry. Uh, though convention and collective agreement, we shape the shared meaning of words, a non-rigid process that constantly evolves through use. The same is true of visual symbols. Although unlike words, there is no dictionary to keep track of what those visual symbols mean or imply. The idea of photography as a universal language further complicates this, as even when you may identify some consensus on the meaning of a visual symbol, it is not possible to assume that this meaning can be extrapolated across the universal level. This difficulty to attach even broad meaning to a symbol encourages a, mental, a mentality where the duty for deriving meaning is placed on the viewer. In these instances, even when the photographer has something they want to say with their work, it is simpler to present an ambiguously, it ambiguously than to put the work into offering a, a guided understanding. Why hand the responsibility for deciding what your work means over to anyone else? Is it really that low a priority for you to have the literal author authorial voice over the photographs you have authored? Is it not easy to force your meaning into an image if it goes against the flow of popular understanding of these symbols? 
It is easier to lean into existing archetypes and and guide them towards your intended use, but even then, you cannot be certain that someone else will accept your definition. For example, using an image of a lamb to imply something other than innocence will take some contextualization to make your use distinct from that cross-cultural connotation. There are literally thousands of years of reinforcement behind the iconography of a lamb, especially from religious uh, religions, either by the metaphor or literal sacrifice. As much as you may want your audience to see something other than this meaning, it will not happen purely by your intent or even the addition of a caption. Instead, by juxtaposing elements, either in the frame itself or in subsequence, you, you contrast one idea against another and somewhat displace the original meaning, supplanting your own. A photograph of something horrific in isolation will not mean beauty until the photographer actively affirms that understanding through context and portrayal. I often see attempts to convey complex subject matter in a way that, doesn't, uh, that just doesn't carry that meaning across, much like how in comedy a hilarious joke can be told about a taboo topic. But a different joke may tackle the same topic far less effectively. The difference is in the execution. A mediocre joke not only won't be funny, but can be considered actively disrespectful, Whereas with a joke that's actually funny, you can see that the work has gone into covering all possible ways of misinterpretation. Cultural differences are where interpretation really plays a role in the photographic depiction, uh, depictions of literal differences in ways we manifest our behaviors. A good example of this is the iconography of a common gesture, two hands with palms together, or Anjali Mudra, as it's commonly referred to in Indian religions. To some, this, scene, this is seen as a form of greeting. To others, it may be a sign of prayer. The prayer connotation of the symbol lends itself to the idea of a request, which means it is further associated with begging. So if you have a photograph of hands in this position without context, what will the meaning be? A greeting, a prayer, or begging? From this, we can see how a photograph with meaning intended to be about welcoming or prayer can be interpreted as about begging or vice versa. This is where contextualization is absolutely key. If in my example image, I had not included the rest of the group and the facial expressions to go with them, it's possible that the truth of the image prayer would have been perceived as something else. Even when you clearly understand what you're going for in your photograph, the execution both in individual frames and in a sequential body of work is paramount. Elimination of subtext and reinforcement of your intention throughout a project means that you equip your viewers with the tools necessary to take from it exactly what you want the impact to be, rather than leaving it for them to provide. If you find your viewers are often misinterpreting your photographs, consider how that is happening, which aspects are being seen as meaning something other than what you meant, and figure out how to better offer more in the periphery to prevent that misconstruction. And I thought that was an interesting article and a good one to wrap up today's episode with.
Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 339 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and remember to hit the bell icon so you can be new, notified when new content releases. I did also want to let my listeners know that this past week, I started putting my podcast in YouTube since they have an actual podcast section now. I only uploaded the last 10 episodes because it would take forever with our slow internet connection here to upload the entire catalog of 339 episodes. But now you can go to YouTube and listen to the show as well. Now, some exciting news. I have three great interviews that are coming up for the next three Thursday episodes. I will be sitting down later on today to talk with Dr. Larry Tiefenbrunn, CEO, inventor, and owner of Platypod about the new Platypod handle that you can you can go and purchase your place your order for a Platypod handle on the Kickstarter page, which I'll put a link to that in today's show notes. So he and I will be sitting down to talk about the Platypod handle, some of the things you can do with it, how he came up with the inspiration for its beautiful, elegant, and durable design. And I also have an upcoming episode where I'll be sitting down with Jesse Fireisen, who's a super talented toy photographer. He makes totally realistic looking images that look like scenes right out of movies. Super talented individual. And I also have an episode coming up soon where I will be sitting down and talking to Richard Burnaby famed wildlife photographer who travels all over the world capturing absolutely stunning images of wildlife. So a lot of great and exciting episodes coming up over the next three weeks. You're definitely not going to want to miss a single one of them. So make sure you're subscribed to the show and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you get notified by both systems each time these new episodes come out. I am going to continue to post the show on YouTube. It doesn't actually have video with it. I add a visualization system to it. So you get kind of like audio waves on your screen, but you can listen to the episode in its entirety. Um, and the last one I posted most recently was episode 338 with Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake. That episode's been highly popular, both in the regular podcast format as well as on YouTube. It's gotten quite a few downloads yeah, or views even on YouTube, which is truly exciting. So just some upcoming things that are definitely exciting. You're definitely not going to want to miss these upcoming interviews. I promise you they will be fantastic because they are all fantastic guests. 
All right, that'll wrap this one up. I will see you all again on Thursday.